Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Aditi Bakshi, professor of law at Fordham University. We'll be discussing her essay, Risk-Averse Contract Interpretation, which was recently published in Law and Contemporary Problems. I'll link to the essay in the show notes for today's episode. Aditi, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. I wondered if we could start the conversation by maybe going over some of the preliminaries. Just in contract, what is boilerplate? We sometimes hear that term, boilerplate contract, boilerplate terms. But what kinds of terms does that include? Uh, what are some reasons why those terms vex courts or the parties that are forming a contract or contract scholars? What makes boilerplate terms interesting as compared to maybe other contractual terms? Thanks. Boilerplate are terms that are not negotiated. They are usually offered on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. These terms are ubiquitous, so everyone has confronted boilerplate or at least seen boilerplate in contracts they've signed. They are everything that's not specific to the particular agreement you signed. So when you sign up for a cell phone, all the cell phone contracts that your particular carrier offers have the same terms, right? So it's not that you walk into the store and ask them, well, you know, do you think that you can give me this price if I have, if I use this much data and can you give me this much, you know, can, can I pay these fees higher and these fees lower? You know, you can't dicker the terms. This is also true between many businesses. They don't start from scratch every time they form an agreement. Even really singular agreements like mergers and acquisitions agreements, they are unlikely to start from scratch. There's going to be many, most of the document that they take off of other contracts for similar transactions. And all of these unnegotiated terms are what we call boilerplate. What kinds of terms do these might include? So they can include really a wide range of terms. The most famous examples of boilerplate are probably arbitration terms and liability waivers. Um, Arbitration terms are terms that provide for arbitration and that usually involve one party waiving the right to go to court, or at least eliminating the right to go to court under certain circumstances. Liability waivers usually entail one party agreeing to uh, give up the right to sue should they suffer some particular kind of injury. Now, for consumers, that's often some kind of physical injury that would result from negligence, but it can also be other kinds of losses that one party to the contract might incur as a result of some kind of negligence or some kind of behavior by the other. So these are terms that appear not only in consumer contracts where they're maybe most famous, or not only in employment contracts where they're very controversial, but also in many business-to-business contracts. They include other kinds of terms as well, indemnification clauses, best efforts clauses, terms that govern the specifications regarding delivery or the requirements for approving a particular product or service that one company is providing another. These can all be boilerplate. Now, of course, all of these terms are also potentially subject to negotiation. So you can imagine that in some cases, parties to a contract might start out with boilerplate and then adjust the terms to the point where they are no longer boilerplate. But as long as they are taking the terms more or less wholesale and not attempting to alter their meaning, we would say that it's boilerplate. 
You also asked why these terms sometimes vex courts, contracting parties, and perhaps most of all, contracting scholars who are most likely to get agitated by them. Well, I think there was a number of reasons why they are unusual or interesting, depending on you know whether you're looking at a glass half full or half empty perspective. Um, I, let me roughly divide these into backward and forward looking reasons. The backward looking reasons why boilerplate are interesting have to do with the process by which they're formed. So we have a kind of standard story about how we make contracts, which might not actually be true of most contracts that we make today. But nevertheless, the standard story is that two parties each have something that they want to get or sell, and they come to a mutual agreement on terms that optimize the deal for them. So, you know, we think of in a a local village market, one person has a cow and the other person wants to buy the cow. They can decide, you know, exactly how much they're going to pay for that cow and maybe when the cow is going to be handed over, whether there's some kind of limitations on whether the cow has to be handed over, this kind of thing. Of course, we don't have that many contracts that look like that or that come into being in that way anymore. But boilerplate is the other extreme. Right, where you have a totally anonymous, personalized process of formation, where the terms do not reflect in any meaningful way, or at least the boilerplate terms do not reflect in any meaningful way, the preferences of the two parties, any of their private information. And the terms are not designed to optimize the transaction as between the two parties to a particular contract. So this is not to say that boilerplate might not be optimal in some overall systemic sense, but as between any two parties that are using it in their particular transaction, it's not optimized. It's not tailored at all. So that's the kind of backward-looking respect in which boilerplate does not conform to the standard classic story of how contracts are made. I would say a forward-looking reason that gives people pause with respect to boilerplate is that its consequences are much greater than that of the terms of any single contract. So if we do have this nice little contract for the sale of a cow and it's not optimized properly, that we know our negotiation was not very efficient or is too abrupt or marred by some kind of personal animosity or whatever reason we might have for coming up with suboptimal terms, it kind of doesn't matter for everyone else very much, right? It's just this one transaction that has these particular terms. By contrast, boilerplate is by its definition standardized, which is to say that it's usually used en masse. So many parties are abiding by those terms, which mean that the terms are effectively more consequential than specialized terms that are being used only by two parties for a very particular transaction. That means that these social consequences of boilerplate are arguably greater. It's not that other kinds of contracts aren't important. Their cumulative effect is also important. But the particular terms of those transactions vary, whereas boilerplate, there's a particular piece of boilerplate that's suboptimal in some respect. It is suboptimal for many transactions, which means that you know possibly millions of people are, are transacting in the suboptimal way. And so this is a kind of, I would say, forward-looking reason why we might worry about boilerplate more than we worry about other kinds of contract terms. You explain the distinction between the substantive or negotiated terms of a contract and the boilerplate terms. I wonder if there are any particular interpretive difficulties or challenges that boilerplate presents to courts or to scholars or to contracting parties, but particularly courts. Are there different interpretive methods we should be thinking about in terms of understanding boilerplate and its relation to contracts, or are they even contracts properly understood, these terms? 
That's a good question. There are, on its face, a few problems that come out of boilerplate. Normally, when we interpret a contract, the standard story is that we are trying to decipher the intentions of the parties with respect to the terms of their agreement. So we are asking, what did the parties mean to do? Right? What were they thinking about this transaction? What did they understand their obligations to be? Those kinds of questions are almost nonsensical when applied to boilerplate because the parties simply did not have any intention with respect to the content of the boilerplate. At least one of the parties is unlikely to have had those intentions. This actually gets at another aspect of boilerplate that I didn't mention yet, which is that it's likely that one of the parties did not read it carefully. Now, this is not, I think, definitionally part of the concept of boilerplate, but it's just descriptively true that in many cases, one, if not both of the parties are not very aware, or if aware at all, of the content of the boilerplate. So given that the parties did not come up with the language and that it, one of the parties may not even have read it, it's hard to look to the party's intentions to supply the meaning of the language as the standard story would have us do. Now, that said, it's not clear that it can't be interpreted in a kind of a normal way under a variety of the normal approaches to interpretation. It's just that the standard goal of contract interpretation to decipher the party's part uh, the party's intentions is um, on its face incompatible with language that the parties did not come up with themselves. But let me give you a few of the approaches, the standard approaches to contract interpretation and suggest how they would handle the problem. So if you're a textualist or um, also sometimes called a formalist, then you're really just interested in what the language of a written agreement says, and you take that to be the best evidence of what the parties intended. So if you're a formalist or a textualist, you are not necessarily going to be inclined to worry very much about whether the language um, in the boilerplate really does embody anyone particular's intentions with respect to the transaction. It's just a kind of working assumption of this interpretive methodology. So even if it's the case that with respect to a particular transaction, the two parties adopted boilerplate without thinking about it, without worrying about what it meant, just included it because they always include that language in certain kinds of transactions, a textualist will say, well, they included it. So we're going to read the contract as objectively indicating certain intentions without worrying whether there was any kind of correspondence between um, these so-called objective intentions and what the parties did or did not, in fact, think about. If you are a contextualist, which is another kind of major approach to interpretation, then you're going to be much more worried about the absence of actual intentions on the part of the contracting parties. So contextualists are eager to uh, or eager to have courts figure out what the parties really meant by the language that they used to try to get at the truth of the matter of the party's intentions with respect to the transaction. And they generally are more inclined than textualists to urge courts to take into account as much evidence as possible to figure out what the parties were thinking. So whereas a textualist will ask the court to just rely on the language in the written agreement, the contextualist will say that once we see 
that the language is amenable to more than one meaning, the court really has to allow the parties to submit evidence of the various meanings that the language could take on and figure out what the parties on the facts of a particular case had in mind. So those are two kind of camps of interpretation generally, the formalists and the contextualists, and I talk a bit about them in my piece. There's another approach to interpreting boilerplate in particular that's worth mentioning, which is those who advocate for the use of reasonable expectations doctrine. Now, the reasonable expectations doctrine is currently used uh, mostly for insurance contracts. So if there's an ambiguous provision in an insurance contract, then the policy is usually going to be interpreted to favor the insured. Now, there are a lot of reasons why the insurance boilerplate might be the ultimate boilerplate, but there are people who think that the justifications are, are more general and should not be cabins to the insurance industry. They would say that given that the parties don't have specific expectations or understandings with respect to boilerplate, what should govern the meaning is just what a reasonable person or in particular what a reasonable consumer in the case of consumer boilerplate would expect those terms to mean. So that's another interpretive methodology with respect to boilerplate in particular, the so-called reasonable expectations doctrine. Then there are the people who would argue that we should find boilerplate to be no contract at all, right? And this speaks to your question about whether they are even contracts properly understood. So if you think that contract requires consent of a particular kind, if you have a fairly robust standard for what consent entails, then boilerplate simply fails to meet that standard. And we would say that those terms were not, in fact, agreed upon by the parties. And because contract is quintessentially what the parties have agreed upon to govern their transaction, then the courts are simply not bound by boilerplate at all. That would be still another way to approach boilerplate. Now, I you know, obviously have to mention my own favorite approach, which is normative triangulation, which I advocate with respect to boilerplate in risk-averse contract interpretation piece, and which I introduce as a method in a different piece. So normative triangulation takes the view that the courts, when they interpret contracts, have to take into account that parties are not transacting in a bubble. They are transacting against a social backdrop, which largely drives the terms on which they agree. So the, the term normative triangulation is a playoff of the idea of triangulation developed by a philosopher of language, Donald Davidson. And he says that, you know, every time we say something, the way the other person hears what we say or understands what we say is by reference to our common environment. So if I say there's a cat on the mat, the way my listener knows that I'm talking about an actual cat on the mat as opposed to the cat in a picture on a wall is that he sees that there is, in fact, a mat on the floor. Or he might see that there's a picture of a cat on the mat in the, on the wall, and he knows that I'm talking about that cat. So the meaning that he or she infuses into my words depends on our common environment. And so likewise, I argue that in contract, how we understand the obligations we assume depends on what we take our pre-existing obligations to be. That's the normative dimension of triangulation here that if we're not just talking about facts in our common environment, but norms and obligations in our common environment. And of course, the single most important set of background norms for purposes of most contracts are the market, the market standard terms. 
So if we are conducting a sale of pencils, then we don't start from scratch in deciding what the price of the pencils are going to be, um, what the units are going to be, you know, whether I'm selling you one or 20 or 30, and what the indemnification provisions are going to be. We don't start from scratch with respect to almost anything. We will look at other transactions for similar items between similarly situated parties. And most of our terms are going to be dictated by the market. Now, in particular respects, we might choose to deviate from the market, and then we can be clear about that. But in most respects, we can expect that transactions in a competitive market will mirror each other in many respects. So I suggest that with respect to boilerplate, we should likewise look to the market. And when we understand what the party's obligations are or what their rights and obligations are under boilerplate, we should look at how other contracts in that industry are understood by people in that industry, how people generally understand what's going on. And that is, that's a method that I think is appropriate for many kinds of contract interpretation, but especially with respect to boilerplate. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the role of risk aversion, which you talk about in this essay, when it comes to interpreting ambiguous terms. Could you maybe discuss a little bit about how courts should approach ambiguous boilerplate terms and maybe what role that risk aversion and market practice might play in that? When parties come to the court with an unambiguous contract provision, the role of the court is clear. They are supposed to uphold the expectations of the parties with respect to that term. They can do that confident that they're doing exactly what the parties expected of them at the outset of the transaction. And they can feel pretty good that they're upholding the sanctity of contract and advancing the rule of law. When parties come to courts with ambiguous contract terms, the courts are in a much dicier position. They wouldn't want to walk away from the term altogether because that undermines contract as well. Right? Parties inevitably are going to have ambiguous terms in their agreements. And if those terms are simply unenforceable, then the value of contract would be severely undermined. But then the courts are in the position of having to decide which of two potentially reasonable meanings to choose. Now, they can do that in a couple of different ways. So one way is maximalist, right? So they could get as much information as possible to try to figure out what the parties were trying to do and, and assign that meaning to the term. Another approach would be minimalist. They could just look at the language of a written agreement and say, okay, we're just going with the writing and we're not going to let our understanding be clouded by or manipulated by all kinds of evidence that the parties might throw at us. Language has meaning. We use it every day. We know what's going on. So this is what it means, right? So those are the kind of like the maximalist and the minimalist approaches roughly corresponding to the formalist and contextualist approaches I described earlier. Now, these same approaches are applicable with respect to boilerplate, as I said. So you could take a boilerplate term and say, okay, you know, language is what it is. These are all words I've seen before. I know what they mean when they're put together in this way, and I don't really need any help, right? I don't need any evidence to tell me more. Others will say, well, you have to figure out what the two parties to this transaction um, had in mind. And if they failed, to have a particular understanding with respect to the term, then you either have to kind of reconstruct something about what they would have had in mind or what we think they would have had in their minds. Or some would say, as I mentioned, that we should just reject the term altogether or reject the contract altogether. I argue that both of these approaches are actually quite risky, right? So to take the approach that's called minimalist or formalist or textualist is risky in the sense that it's quite likely that the party's expectations with respect to how the transaction would go 
will be undermined because the language that they used was not did not fully capture what they had in mind, that the error rate in terms of drafting is just too high to sustain confidence that reading contracts literally is going to deliver on parties' expectations, nor can we have confidence that parties are going to reform themselves, that once they see that boilerplate is being read in some way that's inconsistent with their expectations, that they will change the language, because it's in the nature of boilerplate that these are often relatively low salience terms, that the parties are not motivated to spend a lot of money drafting to optimality. So it's not clear that they're going to update themselves over time. So if we are worried about getting things wrong, which again, you know, my starting point here is that courts should be worried about doing things wrong when it comes to ambiguous terms, then a textualist approach doesn't seem appropriate. Likewise, a contextualist approach also seems dangerous because much of the inquiry that they call for involves answering questions that the courts are quite likely to get wrong. Right. So the ultimate question is, what were these parties thinking about? What were they trying to do? And we probably will never know. Right. So there's there's not an actual answer to that question with respect to boilerplate in particular, because the parties didn't think about it. And so it's not clear that there is a truth of the matter as to what they did or did not mutually understand the terms of the transaction to be as reflected in the boilerplate. So that means that when the court is given all kinds of evidence, they will be not particularly skilled in this at sifting through that evidence and coming up with an answer that best corresponds to what the parties would have guessed the term to mean at the outset of the transaction. So I argue that risk aversion cuts in favor of some evidence, but not others. So I cast this as an intermediate position between formalists and contextualists. So we're not going to take into account everything because there are some kinds of evidence that the court is not in a good position to make sense of. But we're also not going to limit the courts just to, to the words on the page because that's not a reliable indicator of what the parties intended either. So what I suggest is that we should focus on the evidence that courts are best able to decipher, um, evidence that's not specific to the party, but may very well be contextualist in that it refers to the market. So Think of the kinds of terms that the courts are already quite comfortable and versed in setting. So, for example, price terms. When the parties have not set a price term, but the, otherwise the contract meets definiteness requirements, courts are able to supply a price term by looking at market price. Because market price, although it's contextual, it's not specific to the parties. It's not easily manipulable by the parties. It's out there in the world, and there are kind of definite sources that you can go to for trying to establish it. I don't mean to suggest that it's costless for courts to come up with something like market price, but as a relative matter, it's less error-prone and cheaper than a full-fledged contextualist inquiry would have you, but also takes more into account what matters than what a textualist approach. So there's other kinds of market-sensitive information that would be appropriate, in my account, to a risk-averse approach to contract interpretation that courts could systematically take into account without opening the doors to a really expensive contextualist inquiry. Is there one maybe true method or optimal method for interpreting boilerplate, or should we be thinking about this as a question of there are different interpretive methods that might apply to different types of boilerplate terms? So I think this is a really important question, and it's one of the questions that I consider most live in the sense that uh, there's, I think, a lot of reasonable disagreement about this question. My view is that it depends a little bit on how one frames it, but 
I think that there should be one approach to boilerplate that will deliver different kinds of answers for specific cases of boilerplate. So I'm not someone who thinks, well, we should have one interpretive regime for um, insurance, uh, or maybe insurance is the poor example because they actually do have all as close as we get to their own interpretive regime. But one interpretive regime for employment, another interpretive regime altogether for consumer contracts, another interpretive regime for contracts between public companies, another interpretive regime for companies with fewer than 50 employees, right? So there's a lot of different ways to carve up the pie, which incidentally is one of the reasons to not try to carve up the pie. But there are many ways to try to distinguish between transaction types. And of course, different kinds of transactions do have important differences among them. But I think that it's an error to go the route of trying to develop um, unique interpretive regimes for each of these. There are people who would suggest that these different kinds of parties should actually be going to different courts. And historically, it has been the case that different kinds of parties have had different kinds of courts with separate jurisdictions, some with almost quasi-private status, arguably arbitration gets us halfway there. So it's not that it's a a fanciful idea that we would approach all these different kinds of boilerplate differently, but I think there's a, a really kind of fundamental reason why we shouldn't do that. The first and foremost, as I alluded to earlier, it's hard to know how to draw the line between these different transaction types. So is the most important thing that you sell furniture or is the most important thing that you have fewer than 50 employees? Is the most important thing that you are in a rural area or is the most important thing that you are carbon emissions neutral? I mean, there are many features of the parties to transactions that have implications for the nature of the transaction. And I don't think that we can systematically privilege some of these features as more important than others in deciding what interpretive regime should apply. Second, our reasons for interpreting contracts along the lines of one methodology rather than another are likely to apply consistently across different transaction types. So we do have deep splits among contract scholars in what we think is going on when courts interpret contracts, whether they're primarily trying to promote welfare, whether they're primarily trying to um, do justice between the two parties in front of them, whether they're primarily trying to you know, uphold the sanctity of promise. There are a lot of different ways to understand what's going on. If you think that contract is about promoting efficiency in transactions, then that's likely to motivate your approach to interpreting a variety of different contracts. And it's not clear that you gain something from having a completely different approach for each of those different sets. Now, of course, specific evidence that you take into account in interpreting one contract over another will turn on that particular transaction type. So if you're dealing with an industry where there are very few players and they all use the same language, then you might approach the boilerplate differently than in a consumer industry where you have literally millions of contracts using that boilerplate and each of the major retailers tinkers with the language just a little bit, right? So I think it makes sense to approach those two kinds of contracts differently, but I don't think that it is fundamentally requires a a new regime any more than two kinds of ordinary contracts that were formed through distinctive processes require separate interpretive methodologies, right? So every interpretive methodology 
allows for variation in outcome and awards more weight to some considerations rather than others in delivering a particular outcome in a particular case. So it's not that having a uniform interpretive methodology means that cases are decided uniformly in some strict sense. It just means that we don't think that there is some conceptual difference between contracts where some are the product of consent while others are not. Some are the products of markets while others are not. All contracts are products of the market. All contracts are the product of some highly constrained, constructed idea of consent, right? So every contract has these issues. Boilerplate, just more so than others, but not qualitatively different. So boilerplate is a function of the market, just like every Dickard contract for the sale of a company. Boilerplate is product of limited understanding on the part of the parties, as is most contracts, all of which are incomplete, as between any two parties. So I think that you know, the kinds of things that we talk about in boilerplate are also true of many other kinds of contracts, and we lose something or, you know, really waste time trying to draw lines between different contract types, time that would be better devoted to trying to fine-tune the methodology such that it delivers appropriately tailored results to particular cases, taking into account the important ways in which particular matters vary from one matter to the next. What key takeaways would you like our listeners to have from this conversation and from your essay? I'd like us ideally to move beyond the formalist contextualist debate and understand interpretation to have many possibilities. And in particular, I also hope that we will move beyond the kind of simple understanding of contract interpretation as an effort to decipher party meaning and understand contract interpretation to involve many open choices on the part of courts, just contract regulation as a whole does, because we should see contract interpretation as one facet of contract law, which is itself a tool for contract regulation. So I guess those are the two kind of larger takeaways I'd like to press. The moving beyond the debate between formalists and contextualists and moving beyond the kind of simplistic take on contract interpretation as just trying to find something that doesn't really exist, which is what were the parties jointly thinking? They really don't think together. And what we are looking for is a constructed meaning to assign their words. And we have many different kinds of reasons for assigning one meaning rather than another. And you know, this piece is a brief on behalf of giving way to certain kinds of reasons. Our guest today has been Aditi Bakshi, professor of law at Fordham University. We've discussed her essay, Risk-Averse Contract Interpretation, which was recently published in Law and Contemporary Problems. I'll link to the essay in the show notes for today's episode. Aditi, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.